I wanted to take this particular Sunday and perhaps just um, take a little reprieve also from that series to hopefully that you'll be excited to get back into it <laughs> when I come back. But uh, just to take a moment and go into the New Testament to bring you a sermon from this very familiar passage, John chapter 8. I hope you're there. Uh, I'm really excited to be drawing some incredible truths out of this particular passage, only because uh, these verses are very familiar. You might immediately rec- uh, resonate with what Jesus is talking about here, with truth and freedom being declared from uh, his mouth. As you know, John's gospel is filled with some of the very, I would say, some of the, the most beautiful and some of the most important passages of Scripture relating to the Lord Jesus Christ, especially as they involve the proving, I would say, and showcasing the fact that Jesus is God. If you wanted to uh, sort of uh, um, boil down the message of John, that's sort of what he's out to prove. That's his thesis, that this Jesus guy that everyone was uh, going around talking with and interacting with, and this Jesus of Nazareth that he spent so, many, so much time with, he was God in the flesh. Such is why uh, there's a prevalence of miracles throughout the Gospel of John, especially in comparison to the other Gospels. He is showing and showcasing the fact that this Jesus is not just a teacher, not just a good man, not a humanitarian, not just a very generous philanthropist. He is God in the flesh, Yahweh in skin and bone. And that's what I think he's doing throughout this whole book. But I think especially John chapter 8 has this come to the surface even much more than perhaps any of the other chapters. And it, it contains a lot of very memorable phrases. If you remember in chapter 8 verse 12, this is where Jesus sort of designates himself as the light of the world. As he says, then spake Jesus unto them, verse 12, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. And also, there's several other verses we could go to, but I also uh, go to that one in verse 36, which Pastor Nathan read, which is where Jesus is sort of, I would say, perhaps, giving a mantra of his own ministry, which is, if the Son shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. And that, of course, is a verse which we uh, probably immediately find appealing This idea of freedom, this idea of liberty, perhaps your translation has a different word there. Perhaps it has liberty or or some other sort of synonym for it. But perhaps when you hear that word too, this idea of freedom, it, it likely conjures up a lot of images or emotions that are in your head. Maybe many of them are red, white, and blue colored. I don't know. Perhaps you, maybe you think of Mel Gibson in Braveheart where he yells freedom really loudly. I don't know. Maybe that's where your mind goes to. That's where my mind goes to. Um, But this idea of let freedom ring, so to speak, it sounds very American. It sounds something that ought to be, I ought to have a big, you know, red, white, and blue flag behind me as I'm championing out the words freedom. And it's very patriotic and nationalistic and yes, rightly so. But I would say that this notion of freedom being inherent to uh, humans is, is indicative of the fact that it is inherent to humans, not just Americans. We, we don't have a patent on freedom. <laughs> we don't have sort of, uh, we don't have a trademark on it as much as we'd like to think so, perhaps. People everywhere 
are born with this innate desire and longing and notion of freedom. And you see this being born out in a lot of different ways. You see it uh, uh, in small and big ways. This idea that I can be my own freedom maker, so to speak. So we uh, seek to avert authority. Seeing those who wield power as infringing upon our freedoms. And you see this in great and small ways. You see this in in ways as, as small as a mom telling her little child not to steal that cookie that was just freshly baked. And as soon as that command is given, what is the immediate desire of that little child? To take that cookie. (laughs) It's almost immediate. There's this person infringing upon my freedom. I deserve that chocolate chip cookie. And I will take it. Because I can make my own freedom. (laughs) And that might be a small and it it likely uh, likely deserves some chuckles. But I also think it can be as big as as, uh, governments being overthrown by a group of people. They're asserting their own freedom. And they're believing the same lie. Isn't that amazing that stealing a cooking and stealing a government can actually be drawn all the way back to the same lie. And it's actually the same lie that appears in Genesis chapter 3 that you can be like God. It's the lie that started this whole mess. It's the lie that we can make our own freedom. We can establish what it means to be our own lords, to be our own sovereigns. We don't need anyone telling us what to do. We are born free. We don't need anyone over us. And it's happening in both instances. And I say that to say because the freedom that Jesus preaches here is different than what you might think of when you think of that word freedom. It's a little bit different. He extends something, I would say, so much Truer and so much deeper than we realize when he says that when the sun comes and makes you free, you shall be free indeed. That is, in genuineness, in reality of a truth, you will be free. So as appealing as that phrase is in verse 36, it's actually a little bit more penetrating, a little bit more piercing than you might at first realize. This morning, I just kind of want to answer that question. What does it mean? What does genuine freedom genuinely mean? And what does Jesus mean when he says you shall be free indeed? I want to look at that as we see it here in this particular passage. You have to know though uh, that one of the prevailing, uh, we could say failures of the religious elite, which is that's who he's talking to. Remember he's in conversation here with the Pharisees. The very religious elitists of the day, along with the scribes and others that were members of the Sanhedrin court. Here, he's in conversation with them. If you, uh, just to give you a little bit of a background, in John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11, we have that really unique story where there was this woman who was caught in adultery, brought to Jesus for condemnation. And then, you know the perhaps the passage, and he writes in the sand and he says, whoever is without sin can cast the first stone. And everyone feels super amazingly guilty and they drop their stones and leave. And then he says uh, such comforting words to this woman, neither do I condemn you, verse 11, go and sin no more. A very interesting scene which executes the rigidity of the law, but also the grace that Jesus has come to extend. And here he proceeds to get in this conversation with these Pharisees about his right to do what he has just done, so to speak. 
You see, they were always seeking to undermine Jesus' authority. They were always seek to subvert this idea that he had claim on truth that came from God. They could never admit that Jesus was who he said he was. If, if that were the case, then everything that he said would be true. And then everything that they had been proclaiming and, and upholding and lofting as truth would be made to be seen as false. That's why you have these Pharisees, these groups of religious elite, trying to prove or trying to assert the fact that Jesus is a counterfeit. He's not really God. He's not really true. He's not really right. We know the truth, and that's why they are always in debates with him. They could never admit that he was right. And you see this stubbornness on very large display. And we could say in very high contrast throughout this chapter. With Jesus prompting them, uh, prompting them almost at every turn to confess the fact that he is God in the flesh. That he is deity in the form of humanity. This, of course, they flatly outright deny. Notice verse 12 again, where Jesus announces or sort of divulges the fact that he's the light of the world. Then spake Jesus unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. And notice what their response is, verse 13. The Pharisees therefore said unto him, Thou bearest record of thyself. Thy record is not true. You are bearing false testimony. You've just declared yourself the light of the world, which has a, a zillion, not a zillion, but has a lot, a slew of Old Testament illusions that Jesus is therefore making when he says, I am the light of the world. They are obviously take very much offense at this. And so they have this back and forth that goes on for several verses and several instances, eventually leading Jesus to make this really interesting statement that his followers are the ones who know real truth, true truth, we could say. And because they know true truth, they have in, uh, freedom indeed, we could say. Notice verse 31. As Jesus is talking with them both, uh, excuse me, verse, uh, yeah, verse, well, verse 30. As he spake these words, many believed on him. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed, and ye shall know the truth. And the truth shall make you free. The Pharisees, as you might imagine, are a little bit annoyed with this. Probably perhaps more than a little annoyed by this statement right here. Because, you see, Jesus has just suggested that those groups of men, scribes, Pharisees, those who were very committed to the truth of the law, did not actually know the truth. You want to talk about speaking to someone and offending them right out of the gate. Jesus has done this very excellently. You guys who have spent your whole life devoted to the study of, quote, truth, uh, Hebrew Jewish truth, you don't know the truth. In their minds, this wasn't just an obnoxious statement from, an, from a, uh, a, Nazareth, a teacher from Nazareth. This was a very offensive statement. How dare you, sir? It was preposterous, in their minds at least, that these guys who spent so much time upholding the mosaic truth of Scripture actually didn't know the truth at all. Such as what Jesus has just asserted. But also, even more than that, notice that inherent within Jesus' words is this idea that they weren't actually free. Not only did they not know truth, they did not have freedom. 
Notice he says, you will know the truth, something you didn't know before, and the truth will make you free. Something that you weren't, weren't before you knew the truth. He's offending, infuriating these Pharisees in a lot of different avenues. And especially here by insinuating that these Jewish Pharisees, these law keepers, these studious guys that were always about the old truth of the law... They were actually captives. They were actually in chains. And they were in bondage to something or someone else. That's what Jesus is suggesting here. They don't know truth. They don't know freedom. They don't know the the things that they are claiming to know. And as you might imagine, this does not sit well with the Pharisees. (laughs) If, if, just again, put yourself in the Pharisees' shoes and, and have yourself hear these words as perhaps one of them would. As you have memorized the first five books of the Old Testament. You've committed them to memory and study. And you've been examining all of these scriptures your whole life. From a young boy, you went to Sunday school. You went to synagogue. You were always there. You've been in seminary since you were really little. You've always been studying these scriptures. And then this teacher from backwoods Nazareth comes to you and tells you, you don't know the truth (laughs) and you're actually in chains because of it it's very infuriating (laughs) and it actually it makes sense then how they respond notice verse 33 because they make a curious response but I think one that's a little bit understandable considering their uh, what they've been studying notice what they say they answered him we be Abraham's seed and we're never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, ye shall be made free? How can you say this? Jesus, what are you saying? We've never been anyone's slave, they protest. Which is a very curious statement. You know, how should we make sense of what they're saying here? Because... Were they in this moment completely blind and ignorant of their own history up to the fact that, that slavery was plaguing all of their forefathers for hundreds, thousands of years? It's, I, was, I had to pause on this verse because it's hard for me to imagine that the Pharisees, these very studious and strict students of Israelite lore and law, could be so blind to the fact that they were in bondage in the past to uh, Egypt, to Assyria, to Babylon, to Rome, even now when they're saying these words. <laughs> they're under Roman domination in this very moment in the first century. So we're... How do we make sense of this idea that they were just completely blind to history? What were they saying here when they say, we be Abraham's saint, we've never been in bondage to any man? Some have suggested, and I think it could be true, that it was because of their hatred. That they hated Jesus so much that it almost like clouded their vision. And they were almost completely ignorant to what they had known and because of their hatred of Jesus' teachings. You know, when you get mad... And you know you're wrong, but you can't admit that you're wrong because that would mean that you can't be mad anymore. It's, that's sort of like what the Pharisees are here, <laughs> at least according to some people's interpretations. And I think that could be true. It, I think it's very possible that that's what they're asserting here, that they're forgetting their own past. And they're because of how much they dislike <laughs> Jesus. It, 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 again, at the end of the chapter, they want to collect stones and kill him. So obviously they don't like him very much. They don't have a good view of Jesus. But actually I think 
As I've spent some time meditating on this particular verse, I think it's actually because of what they appeal to. Notice again verse 33 as it says, they answered him, we be Abraham's seed. Which I think gets at what they were thinking and meaning behind this rebuttal of, we don't need your freedom, Jesus. We are of the lineage of Abraham. Did you ever sing that song? I'm not going to sing it. But maybe you're thinking of it right now. Because that's what the Pharisees are appealing to. They're appealing to Father Abraham, who had many sons. And they're saying, we are of the many sons of Father Abraham. We don't need your freedom here. They were making this very bold declaration, in fact, that they were free indeed because of their bloodline. Because of who that they originated from. They were studiers, students... (laughs) Of not just law and lore. They were studiers of genealogies. You know when Paul is writing to Timothy. And he's worrying about all those who are doing fanciful genealogical work. In 1 Timothy chapter 1. I think he talks about that. It's sort of like that. There's a lot of lore that is going into the genealogies. And here these Pharisees had studied this all out. And they say we are of the seed of Abraham. Therefore because they were of the people of bondage. Or the people of promise I should say. That preserved them from any sort of spiritual bondage. It wasn't, they weren't trying to say that they had never been in chains to Egypt. They were trying to say that even when we were. We were still Jehovah's people. And that's what made us free. Lineage. Bloodline. Because of who uh, was their father. Father Abraham. They were genealogically free in a way we could say. And therefore you can see what they're trying to assert. We don't need your freedom you backwoods Galilean teacher. We don't need what you're trying to extend to us. We are free already. We don't need any type of liberation that you have come to give us. Especially if it means taking it from the likes of you, a carpenter's son. They were already free in their minds. According to the words and the laws of Moses that they had so uh, spent so much time uh, pouring themselves over. Imagine at this moment. Jesus coming on the scene and he's, he is looking to stir up some people. He's looking to sort of stir the pot a little bit. And I see him here as they make this response. And I don't know if this is in the text. I sometimes like to imagine this moment and Jesus kind of smirking and shrugging. And then he launches exactly into what you would think of, of a person who looks to stir the pot. Look at verse 37. So they've just, remember, they've just appealed to Abraham. We are of Father Abraham. We are free because of him. We are free because of what was promised and blessed to him. And notice what Jesus says. I know. I know that you are Abraham's seed, but ye seek to kill me because my word hath no place in you. I speak that which I have seen with my father, and ye do that which ye have seen with your father. And they answered and said unto him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus saith unto them, If ye were Abraham's children, ye would do the works of Abraham. But now ye seek to kill me, a man that hath told you the truth, which I have heard of God. This did not Abraham. Ye do the deeds of your father. And then they said to him, We be not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. And Jesus said unto them, If God were your father, ye would love me. 
For I proceeded forth and came forth from God. Neither came I from myself, but he sent me. But do ye not understand my speech, even because ye cannot hear my word? Ye are of your father the devil. And the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. When, ye, when he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. And because I tell you the truth, ye believe me not. Sit and pause. <laughs> These guys who've just made the, the very strong, bold declaration, we are of our father Abraham. And Jesus takes them right at that argument and says, no, according to your works, you're actually aping your father, the devil. <laughs> you're imitating the, uh, uh, just who, and you're actually revealing just who your true father really is by what you're doing and saying to me, even here in this moment, he says. You're not doing anything that tends towards uh, being like your father, Abraham. You're actually doing and imitating uh, who is your true father, the devil. <laughs> you notice he's also, and it's not explicit, but he's, as he says there, that he is a liar and the father of lies. And you are continuing in that trajectory by lying and, con- and conspiring. Again, he's... Alluding a little bit back to Genesis 3, where the father of lies gave the first one. (laughs) That you can be like God. That you can make your own freedom. That you can be your own sovereign. You see, this is what the Pharisees were doing. And here, you can imagine their outrage. Imagine how incensed they were. He's just offended them in a lot of ways. And now he said, your father is not that patriarch that you've spent so much time studying, so much time uh, maintaining the truth of. It's the devil himself. He's the one they were following. Again, no wonder by verse 59, they want to take up stones and kill him. Think about all of this harsh truth that Jesus has just been laying bare and laying open before them. But what he's getting at, what he's getting at is so much truer and deeper in this assessment of their bondage. Go back to verse 34. Because notice, how shall you say that we need to be free? They respond in verse 33. And then verse 34, Jesus answered and said to them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. You see, they were doing what their master was intending for them to do as servants of sin. They were the servants of the one who is the father of all lies. You see, these Pharisees were lying to themselves. They were boldly declaring, we were never in bondage. And yet sin had blinded them to the very fact that they were enslaved by sin itself. They were sinners and didn't even know it because they thought that they could be free by their meticulous maintenance and keeping of the law. That through law keeping, we can be free. We can make our own freedom. And Jesus is saying here, you are in chains. You are chaining yourself because sin is your master. They were in bondage and they didn't even know it. They were the servants of sin. I would say that this is the most accurate description of the human experience, if you will. 
that we are born in sin. We aren't born free. It's a myth. It's a false reality. This idea that we're born free. No, we're born in chains. We're born to, in bondage to sin and death. And it comes because our first father, Adam, believed the lie that you can make your own freedom. We're born into a world that is fractured and polluted by sin and strife. We see this all around us. We don't need to go out and seek answers for it. Just open foxnews.com or CNN or open Facebook. How God bless you if you do. And you'll see it all in front of you. Corruption and pollution of sin and strife and things I would say not meaning to depress you or not meaning to make you a little bit more dour, but it's probably even worse than it appears. At least it is with our own souls. The human condition is worse than we ever suppose all the time. We are bound in prison to sin. We are slaves, as Paul says in Colossians, to the old man. That's who has us in chains and in shackles. Our sin nature as we come into this world, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, is entirely corrupt. All the way through. Corrupt and deceitful. In fact, earlier in Ephesians, he says that we are all by nature the children of wrath and the children of disobedience. And he echoes Jesus. Paul does. This is Ephesians 2 verse 2. That we are following the prince of the power of the air. We are born children of wrath whose father is the devil and we do the works of our father. Such is what Jesus has said. Such is what Paul says. And such is the accurate statement of all humans who come into this world. That we're doing what it is our father does. Lie and cheat and steal and commit violence. I wonder do we realize how enslaved we are? Maybe, uh, maybe you would say, like the Pharisees, I'm free. Are you? There's only one person who can make you free. And Jesus is about to get there. This is really harsh language, perhaps. This idea that we are born in sin and we can't do anything to make ourselves free. That we are shackled to sin and death and hell and the grave. And we have all of these things that we see in front of us that reveal this, that prove this, that evidence this. It goes down like acid perhaps. Who wants to admit that they are enslaved? But even more than that, who wants to admit that they are enslaved to the service of Satan himself? You can imagine why the Pharisees would be so adamant that that was not true. Because it's instinctively human to say that, no, that's not true of me. How dare you assume that? But you see, part of the freedom that Jesus is here offering, the truth shall make you free. It's the freedom to accept this most humiliating truth that you aren't free indeed and that you are actually in need of rescuing. It's the freedom to believe that and admit that and recognize that. 
Part of this freedom that Jesus is here extending to not just this audience, but to us, yes, here, even now, is this very fact. It's the paradoxical fact of the gospel that before we can enjoy the freedom of Jesus Christ, we have to know and see that we are actually in bondage. It's the bad news that comes before the good news. The bad news that no, you aren't free indeed. You're enslaved to sin. You are children of wrath. And you need a rescuer. You need a deliverer. You need someone to come and set the captives free. This is the good news that Jesus is here preaching. He comes and says, I am that man. Notice, notice verse 35. Jesus has just suggested these Pharisees, and by proxy, we here too are the servants of sin. Notice verse 35. And the servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth ever. He's making a, a, a statement that might not seem profound, but it is. As endangered servants, they did not hold lifelong positions in the house or the men or perhaps wherever they were serving. They were interchangeable. They were, their status was unstable and erratic and untenable. It wasn't like they were always a servant. They could be traded for someone else. They could be traded for something else. A son held an enduring position in the house. He abideth ever, as Jesus has just said. So you have this dichotomy here between impermanence and permanence. As he says, the heir of the house is, I think what he's insinuating here is the heir of the house, the son of the house is free indeed, genuinely free because his status as a son is not subject to change. I think this is what's on display. You don't have to go there, but this is what's on display in Luke chapter 15. It's kind of the surface level example of exactly what Jesus is talking about. That the son's status doesn't change. Remember the prodigal son? He comes back to his father. And remember as he's rehearsing this repentance speech. And he's saying, I'm, I'm really sorry dad. And if you want to take me back, um, I'll, I'll, I'll just be a servant. I'll have to work on your land. And I'll be one of your hired slaves. And remember when he comes back, what does the father do? <laughs> he interrupts that repentance speech. And he says, bring out all of the best things, the best robe, get him sandals, give him all of the best thing, give him a ring on his hand, and let's have a party we're going to celebrate. Why? Because his son, who was lost, as he says, is now found. And in fact, actually, let me read it. It's way better if I read it, because it's actually the words of God, (laughs) and not my bad memory of it. Um, Luke 15, verse 20. And he rose and came to his father, but when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight and am no more worthy to be called thy son. He thinks of himself as though his status as a son is able to be changed. And the father said to his servant, bring forth the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring hither the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to be merry, to have a party. 
He treats this wayward son not as one who had rebelled and and needs to work his way back into favor. He treats him as a resurrected son. He was dead and now he's alive again. He was lost and he's found. His status as a son never changes. And the insinuation is that Jesus is here to do exactly the same thing to you who are slaves to sin. He's here to make you into sons whose statuses cannot change. He's here to bring all of those who are enslaved to sin, who are shackled to sin and death and hell and the grave, and bring them into the family of God as sons and daughters of the one true living God. And their status as sons and daughters, therefore, cannot be changed. That's what he's here declaring. And there's an even more obvious sort of allusion to this. Go to Hebrews. You have to see. So, well, let me read that verse again. So so it's fresh in your mind. So John 8, verse 35. And the servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abides forever. Go to Hebrews 3. Notice what the writer there alludes to in Hebrews chapter 3, alluding to the law, alluding to this idea of a house. Notice Hebrews 3, verse 4. For every house is builded by some man, but he that builds all things is God. And Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after. A servant in a house, but Christ as a son over his own house. Whose house are we if we hold fast to the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end? Notice what he has just done. He's asserted exactly what Jesus has here proven in reality. That those who were appealing to the law as their mode of freedom were actually not free at all. They were enchaining themselves back to exactly the impermanence of Moses. You were like... Moses, you are following in his house, which makes you just like a servant. You're enchained. You're in bondage. You're enslaved. And as he says, opposite of that, those who are in the house of Christ, we can say, by faith, by this holding fast the confidence of our faith, those are the ones who are, quote, free indeed. You see, This is exactly what's happening in this scene with these Pharisees. These keepers of the law. They were living like servants. Living like indentured slaves to Moses and ultimately to Satan himself who was their father. And you see this is what Jesus is meaning here when he says that you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. Precisely because I am Jesus the son of God who abides forever in my father's house. And I have a status that cannot be changed. And I am here as the son to make you free. And this is what leads us to verse 36. If the son therefore shall make you free ye shall be free indeed. Genuinely, truly, really free. Really, really That's what he's getting at here. And this is the good news that Jesus is here preaching. It's this announcement that the bondage that we find ourselves in, the bondage that is all around us and that we don't even see it, we don't even know it, is exactly the bondage that he has come to take away. It's the chains that he has come to break. This is his mission. This is the purpose why he came into the world. And there's so many passages that I want to take you to. But for sake of time, I won't. But 
This is his mission. He's here to set free the captives, as it says in Isaiah 61 verse 1. To deliver his children, as it says in Isaiah 49 verse 25. To set prisoners free, as it says in Psalm 146 verse 7. This is what he does. This is why he's in the world, to deliver those who are in bondage and don't even know it. He's come to deliver those who are servants of sin and they can't even see it. All of this is because he is the stronger one who is on the scene. He is Yahweh in the flesh. He is the I am. Notice verse 24 of John 8. I said therefore unto you that ye shall die in your sins. For if ye believe me, believe not that I am he, ye shall die in your sins. Then said they unto him, who art thou? And Jesus saith unto them, even the same that I said unto you from the beginning. And then jump down to verse 58 as he says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. A shockwave went out across the audience. Jesus has just appealed three times in very explicit ways, but all the way through the chapter to so many Old Testament texts where God, Jehovah, comes and says, I am. I am that I am. I am Yahweh. You can see there's so many verses. I won't take you into all of them. But he's appealing to Exodus 3 where you have that burning bush. And Moses receives that word from Jehovah. And the word says, I am that I am is the one who is sending you. And Jesus is saying the same thing. I am is very before you. I am in the flesh is here in front of your faces. There's no mistaking who Jesus is. He is God. He's the light of the world who has dawned on this very place that is so sinful, that is so full of strife, that is so full of agony and violence and grief and hate. And he has come as the light of the world to bring us into the light of life, as he says in verse 12. And this is the freedom that he has come to give us. That we no longer have to bumble and stumble around in the dark. We can follow him in the light as disciples indeed. Because that's what makes us free indeed. It's this deliverer. And I want to. I, I may not have time but I'm going to do it anyways. Mark, Go to Mark chapter 3. Because you have to see this verse. I know we covered it but it's so long ago you probably don't remember. Mark chapter 3. This has one of my favorite verses regarding the work of God, the work of Christ, as the one who comes and overthrows the powers of sin and darkness. And it's one that we often skip and miss. Mark chapter 3, verse 27. Look at what Jesus is saying. He's in a conversation again with Pharisees. He has just performed a miracle, and they are claiming that he has a demon in him. But in the midst of this conversation, notice what he says in verse 27. No man can enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he will first bind the strong man, and then he will spoil his house. Very interesting phrase, a very interesting word in here. But this to me is one of the most awesome pictures of who Jesus is. Again, remember, we are in a world that is dominated by the prince of the power of the air. You could say that this is Satan's house. The strong man's house. And if someone is going to come and invade a strong man's house, he's not going to get anywhere. He's not going to get his job done if he doesn't first bind the strong man, keep him sealed, tie him to a chair, and not let him move. 
This is what Jesus has done, my friends. Jesus is the stronger man who comes into Satan's house and binds him and then makes us, the servants of sins, his spoiled goods. <laughs> the, the goods of his spoils of war as he overthrows Satan, as he assails Satan's house and brings those who are endangered servants to his darkness, brings them into the light. This is the freedom that he has come to enact. He is the spoiler of Satan's house. The invader of Satan's domain. Who brings us out of chains and into freedom. You see, this is why it's so much deeper and truer. And it's not just about red, white, and blue and fireworks. It's freedom from sin and death and hell and freedom from the law. Oh, happy admission because of one thing. That this Jesus is God in the flesh and he has come to make you free. And he does it by tasting death for us. As it says in Hebrews chapter 2. By abolishing death for every man, as it says in 2 Timothy 1. He does it by being made sin himself, 2 Corinthians 5. I just love what John has here established. That the mission of Yahweh in the flesh is to come and liberate the captives. Ones who don't even know it. Don't even see it. Don't even see how they're in bondage. See how they're in chains. And he says, I have come to give you truth and freedom. And it's in me because I am the way, the truth, and the life. My friends, this morning, you can let freedom ring precisely because of who this Jesus is, the Christ, the Son of God in the flesh. Are you free this morning? You're free to do whatever you want to after the service. It's Labor Day weekend. But are you really free? What's keeping you in chains? What's keeping you in bondage? What sin, what lie are you keeping in yourself and telling yourself that keeps you down and in chains? My friends, there is only one deliverer. There is only one liberator. There is only one who can make you free indeed. And it's this Jesus Christ who is the way, the truth, and the life. Let us pray.